And welcome back to another episode of the Cody Tucker Show. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. Uh, thanks for coming back and joining me. Um, be sure to like and subscribe. Also, be sure to check out the merch store, buy a t-shirt, save me from becoming homeless, you know, all that good stuff. So, if uh, <laughs> if my voice sounds a little rough, uh, I smoked so many cigarettes last night. <laughs> and, you know, not to brag, but I I have got to stop. I mean, now granted, look, I kicked one habit, kicked drinking, uh, like three or four years ago. So, doing pretty good as far as that goes. And I thought, sort of, that if I quit drinking, that I would also, you know, pump the brakes a little on the cig smoking. Because, boy, was I <laughs> burning through heaters uh, every night that I was getting drunk, which was basically every night. Um, quit drinking, and yes, cigarette smoking has reduced a wee bit, but not enough. And I am, <laughs> I am feeling it. Oh my God. I mean, I know that I should quit and that I should just start, you know, fucking plugging myself up with Zins, but I just cannot bring myself to do it. I don't know why. I know that it's, I would be much better off if I did, but I can't do it. There's just something about cigarettes that make you feel so cool. <laughs> and uh, look, I know that, you know, maybe you, Maybe we shouldn't be thinking this way. That's probably true. But also, uh, I can't help myself. It makes you feel so cool to like... So, to be in a crowd of people, like let's say you're outside being in a crowd of people, there's nothing that makes you feel cooler than just lighting up a cigarette and just watching the looks of disgust on everyone's face who now is also having to smoke a cigarette with you. (laughs) (laughs) it is it's so obnoxious and like i know i'm obnoxious whenever i do it but i kind of like it's kind of like i wish someone would say something (laughs) and i can't do anything i can't defend myself i'm just a big fat pudgy some bitch who cannot fight so if somebody said hey man would you put that fucking cigarette up i mean i i'd have to say something back but i would get my ass handed to me so quick. <laughs> oh, not good. Um, I'm like smoking cigarettes. It's like it's the same way people. It's the same way people who ride motorcycles. Like, okay, so cigarettes are only annoying to everyone else. <laughs> the person smoking the cigarette is having a blast. It ain't annoying at all to him. It's like a motorcycle. It's the same way people who drive who it's the same way people who ride motorcycles look at their motorcycle. Everyone around them hates this person. Hates that they are ruining their nice afternoon. But the guy on the bike <laughs> is just complete tunnel vision does not care what any of these people think about him. And I kind of I have some respect for it. It it like Cigarettes are basically just like mouth motorcycles. <laughs> like it is my way because I can't balance. It's my way of like getting that feeling that a biker gets whenever they just don't give a shit that they are being so loud for no reason. Whenever I light up a cigarette and just 
blow that fucking smoke out like a goddamn dragon, I feel, I feel like I'm on top of the earth. <laughs> oh, man. Like, I don't know. It just, it's awesome. Like, go watch a Western. There ain't nobody in there fucking complaining about someone's cigarette smoke. <laughs> like, there ain't no John Wayne movie where that some bitch is lighting up a cig and somebody's like, oh, God, would you put that out? Hell no. Granted, John Wayne did die from lung cancer. So, maybe someone should have put out his cigarette for him. <laughs> Alright, so, I've rambled on enough about this bullshit. Let's, uh, let's see what's on the old uh, docket today. Ooh, so, I watched what... Alright, so I watched this movie. Talk to me. This movie was absolutely incredible. If you have not seen it, um... Talk to me, basically. Plot of the movie. A girl who um, is living with her father. Their mother has um, unalived herself. And the girl's, you know, struggling to deal with that. She has a friend with a little brother. Um, she's kind of become, like, in a way, like, her surrogate family. Because, like, her dad, she doesn't get along with the dad. Kind of blames the dad for the mother's unaliving. And is now, you know, joined in with this uh, group, with this family. And this little, um, you know, game, if you will, sort of pops up where <laughs> you grab that hand. That, that, is that right? Yeah. You grab that hand. Now, hey, let me just take this off. This fucking uh, getting in my, yeah. All right. So the object of it is that there's basically a hand that is covered in plaster that allegedly belonged to a mystic of some sorts. And you grab the hand and say, talk to me and as soon as you do a ghost shows up <laughs> and if you say let me in you become possessed and it becomes basically a party trick where <laughs> instead of doing drugs you just get possessed by a goddamn demon <laughs> so it's like it is it's like the paranormal version of salvia so, like, when Salvia became a big thing, I remember being with some friends who were smoking Salvia. Um, and I was 100% going to do it. Luckily, I was not the first person <laughs> to light up the old Salvia. The person who went first, me seeing what happened to them for, like, I don't know, 15, not even 15 minutes. How long? I don't even remember. It was, it was not a long time. It was, like, a very quick little just burst of them becoming a drooling, you know, mongoloid <laughs> for, you know, a couple minutes. And this is, and then I was like, ah, yeah, I'm not doing this. I've already, you know, done enough damage to myself with the insane amount of whippets that I used to do. Um, it's actually a miracle that I can even like put together a sentence, but here I am. <laughs> and, uh, this talk to me, it's like that version of that. Like everybody, you know, who does it gets possessed for a little bit. And it's like this amazing experience. <sighs> White people shit. <laughs> now, granted, the main person in this movie is a person of color, which is, you know, good. Um, but yeah, uh, there isn't a force on this planet that could get me to do this. Now, granted, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in really anything supernatural it's fascinating for sure and i love horror movies um i've loved horror movies my entire life um 
and I love like the whole idea of you know possession and all this shit, and watch The Exorcist, you know, well over a hundred times. Um, actually, play a little game if you will, since I don't drink. Um, I'll live vicariously through the uh, you know ten people watching this. If you got a little bit of alcohol on you right now, any time in an episode that I mention a movie and say I've seen it at least a hundred times, go ahead and take a sip, because <laughs> I have noticed like. Unfortunately, I have to watch this shit and, like, you know, edit it and whatever. So I have to hear my own voice, which is... I'll never get used to hearing that fuck this fucking horrible voice that I have. Um, so I apologize to everyone who is, for some reason, listening to this. But thank you. Um, I will say that uh, I have noticed that I say... Basically, every time I bring up a movie, I say that I've seen it over a hundred times, or at least a hundred times... Which may seem like I'm just lying and saying that about every movie. So far from what I've noticed, I have actually been telling the truth on this. <laughs> every movie that I've mentioned is a movie that I've seen at least a hundred times. Not to you know jump the gun here, but I'm gonna do the old Mount uh, my Mount Rushmore segment. All four of the movies, actually three out of the four movies in that my Mount Rushmore segment, are also on the 100 movie. Uh, times list club so anyways sorry but it's just the way i am um so anyways this talk to me i mean it is incredible now granted it is nowhere near as scary as i thought it was going to be from the trailer oh man i thought this was going to be the scariest movie that i had ever seen and it isn't now i'm not like you know necessarily bitching about that it's just not you know it's not that scary, but it is an incredible movie. And movie, I mean, I don't know that I really even get scared from movies anymore. I think the last movie that just like legitimately terrified me was probably Sinister. That movie came out like 10 years ago. So since I was, you know, 18, I've never had a movie that just like really like fucked with me. Um, it made me like, you know, have nightmares, which I don't even know if I, I didn't have nightmares from that. I just was like real afraid to take a shower. <laughs> For some reason, every time I closed my eyes in the shower, I thought I was going to be fucking butchered by a bagul. Now, um, but this movie talked to me. So get that. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to spoil any of this, but just kind of get it into your head before you watch it, that it isn't just filled with a bunch of fucking jump scares. Like it is, a, it is a creepy movie without a doubt, but it's just a really good movie. And, yeah. Like, I love horror movies. Love them. More than anything. Hence the, you know, where am I? You know, Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, you know, all that. Shining is, god damn, I, boy, I don't know, like, left and right. So there's, you know, old Jack Torrance. Um, Wendy, Darling. Um, so, yeah. Love, love horror movies. So I feel like if I recommend a horror movie, now, a lot of my recommendations, I, I would just go ahead and tell you, ignore them. Because a lot of things I'll recommend, I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. But if I recommend a horror movie, just watch it. Like, I, I stand behind my recommendations for horror movies. And yeah, this movie is, is very good. Very well, well directed. Yeah. Well written. You know, all that. So, uh. Yeah, definitely check it out. Let's just go ahead and move on from that, though. So, um, kind of go through some news stories, see what's going on in the world. Okay, so an epidemic 
of syphilis has been raging through Texas, causing newborn cases to climb and treatment shortage. I, sorry. <laughs> God, could you imagine if I was single-handedly responsible for spreading syphilis throughout the Lone Star State? Um, I mean, I guess by, you know, you know, the laws of uh, statistics, maybe so. I, I do not have syphilis. I just have, I definitely have holes in my brain. Uh, what they're caused from, who knows? My, you know, uh, go backwards a little bit. Probably the whippet usage. Um, yeah, this syphilis thing is nuts. I thought syphilis was a thing that people just don't have anymore. And if you look up and look into, like, what syphilis does to people, oh, oh my God. Fuck, fuck COVID. COVID is nothing compared to like what's if there is a syphilis epidemic in old the Lone Star State, I'm staying at home because I don't know. Like, I mean, no, I wonder, like, what's the incubation period for syphilis? Because in my head right now, I'm kind of rolling through a few encounters where I shouldn't be clean. <laughs> I don't have any symptoms of anything, of anything, you know, from that. But I should. Every ounce of me believes that I should have something. Now, granted, I could just go take a fucking test and find out for sure. Eh, I don't really want to do that. I guess I'm just going to keep, you know, thinking, you know. Ignorance is bliss, you know. <laughs> I guess. Um, but yeah, like, what syphilis does to your brain is, uh, I mean, it, it literally just rots away at your brain eventually. Now, obviously, you can get it treated before that happens, but if you don't. Shit, why the fuck am I yawning so much? Jesus. All right. But if you get syphilis and don't get it treated, yeah, the brain rot is incredible. Um, I mean,. Al Capone had syphilis, which one of the funniest stories in history, which I know this isn't the history segment yet, but whatever, is that Al Capone had contracted syphilis most likely while he was in prison, which he went to prison for tax evasion. Um, while he was in prison, he con contracted syphilis, probably from a little bit of a boofing, if I had to guess. And, you know, no treatment for syphilis. So his brain started just rotting away. When he was released from prison, he basically had the mental acuity of a five-year-old, maybe even less than that. So Al Capone, who was this, well, I mean, one of the richest people in the country at the time, had this mansion, still had his bodyguard, still had all this stuff. So he comes out of prison as, <laughs> as basically, what's the flowers of Algernon? Charlie, whatever his name is. Basically comes out <laughs> as Charlie from uh, Flowers for Algernon and spends his days wearing his, like, leopard skin bathrobe, sitting on the diving board of his pool, fishing into his own swimming pool with a legitimate rod and reel <laughs> trying to catch fish inside of a chlorinated swimming pool. So, yeah. That's what syphilis can do to you. So wrap it up. Now, granted, I'm also saying that to myself. I should probably heed my own advice, but my God. Um, so next, 
Okay, so this has been a story that I think everybody is well aware of by now. But Delta Airlines uh, had to divert a flight due to explosive diarrhea. So basically, a person <laughs> shit themselves throughout the entire plane. <laughs> and yeah, it is. it looks like goddamn graffiti. Like when you look at it, it looks like shit graffiti. Fucking Stanksy was <laughs> was apparently on this flight. And it is, boy, I tell you what. Now, I haven't been on a plane in a very long time. But knowing how my bowels work, I tend to hold in my shits for a very... I'm going to say some things right now that are probably not what most people want to hear. And that's all right. It's just a thing we'll all have to deal with together. I... I hold in my shits to the last minute, which I believe can cause colon cancer. So one day this will become a, uh, a sad bit of irony, I imagine. Um, but I, I don't know why I just have a thing about like growing up. I would never, I, ne- I could not shit in public, like couldn't shit in school. So I would uh, end up holding my shits throughout the entire day. And whenever I came home, unleash, unleash hell in my bathroom. And I guess that habit has stuck with me even in, you know, today's world or, you know, to my modern world. And yeah, so I would have a real hard time, I think, shitting in an airplane. Like, I know what airplane bathrooms look like. I know how I know what I look like. (laughs) And I'm pretty good at like basic uh, geometry. So I feel like I know that... um, I'm not I'm not suited I'm not suited for an airplane bathroom. So most likely I'm holding it the entire flight. Now depending on turbulence, my pre-flight meal, sheer nervousness and anxiety, I feel like there's probably about an 80% chance that I just drop a full log down my fucking short leg. You know, down like the pant leg of my shorts. Short leg, right? Bull. Either way, I, I'm going to have a log probably the size of, I would argue probably the size of a throw pillow, roll down my leg and just probably roll, roll down the aisle of the plane. <laughs> it will, it's going to look like a totem pole. Uh, like I was like, I'm sitting on a totem pole. It uh, not good, not good at all, but that's the reality. You know, that's what I live with on a day to day basis. So, um, Yeah that's that um let's see let me move on to the next one one second all right here we go so last story woody allen considers retirement after latest film still maintains innocence and calls cancel culture silly (laughs) i bet you do i bet you do woody allen uh the person who spent a large portion of the 1980s diddling seems to have a problem with the cancel culture. Now, I would have never thought in my life that I would agree uh, with Woody Allen more than in the two parts of this headline. I'm s- thank you for retiring because your movies, let me take this off. Your movies are the worst movies ever made. And I have been getting torn to pieces by all of these I don't know what the diddlin version of a turf is but whatever it is a derf all of the actually well i guess it would be perf you know p for pedo um all the perfs 
have, who have been attacking me about, um, and not attacking me, I don't know why, I mean, I'm exaggerating a wee bit, but all of these perfs who are, you know, kind of seem to have an take issue with me hating Woody Allen movies. They're not good. He, it's, all it is, is neurotic, it's just neurotic New York version of Michael Bay movies. That's all it is. It it's the same movie over and over, with me, mind you, the top of the top of the top of the Hollywood A list who seem to have zero problems making movies with Woody Allen, yet are very much behind the Me Too movement and you know social justice, but have zero problems working with Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. Um, so <laughs> yeah, there that's a little bit of a uh, interesting interesting uh bit of hypocrisy but Woody Allen's movies are just not good they're boring the plots are stupid the writing is just it's not how people talk it's they're just bad and he makes and the worst thing is that he makes one every year and every year gets nominated for an Oscar and people are like oh well of course Woody Allen's movie whatever he does whatever Woody Allen you know craps out onto a DVD gets you know sent in and it becomes oh my god have you seen the new woody allen no no one sees these movies and yet somehow they get all this attention i don't know woody allen i think has he must have a lot of dirt on people because it's the only way (laughs) that people are you know dealing with being in these movies i don't know fuck woody allen his movies suck um watch go watch talk to me it's a good movie all right so now we'll move on to uh, my Mount Rushmore. This week, um, this week's uh, Mount Rushmore is going to be arguably one of my favorite genres of movies: '80s teen movies. So, without further ado, we'll take a little break, and we will do uh, that. All right, here we go. So now we're gonna do the old my Mount Rushmore. Like I said, this week, it's going to be uh, 80s teen films. Some comedy, some not. Regardless, 80s teen films. Bit of a warning. Uh, There's four movies, obviously. Four Prezes on the old Mount Rushmore. Two of these, I think, are going to be pretty obvious choices. Like, if you're... Be thinking in your head of, like, what 80s teen films you would put on the Mount Rushmore of 80s teen, uh, teen films. I think we're all going to probably agree on two of these. And then I have two more that are going to be, I think, a wee bit, um, well, kind of like curveballs here. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and start off with one of the curveballs. So this is the movie Red Dawn. Now, I just watched this movie yesterday. I mean, granted, I've seen it a lot, not a hundred times, but I have seen it a lot. I love everything about this movie. So we need this movie to exist more. We need way more movies involving Russia attacking the U.S. Because every one of them <laughs> were amazing. Red Dawn, uh, Rocky Four, well, Hunt for Red October, kind of. That's about all I can really think of. Anyways... Uh, they're well, three for three. 
all very good movies. Uh, now let me say, let me just take this down. So actually, and also, if you're blinded by the handsomeness of that man at the bottom, uh, yeah, you're in comp- Yeah, <laughs> we share that sentiment. Patrick Swayze is the coolest human being of all time. Without even trying to be cool, Patrick Swayze is just so awesome. Man, I wish he was still alive. God. Anyways, oh yeah, and that's also a, a very young Charlie Sheen at top. If you've never seen Red Dawn, if you've seen Red Dawn, then you already know all of this. Um, so again, Red Dawn is the story of a couple of teenagers in Colorado. Uh, the Russian slash Nicaraguan military, you know, commies, just drop into the small uh, town in the middle of Colorado and just start blasting people. And somehow, <laughs> this group of teenagers survives that initial attack which you know i know movies are movies they're not supposed to be real there is not a chance that they don't all get killed in the first five minutes of this movie (laughs) hey is look as much as i love patrick swayze as cool as i think as as he is um and hell charlie sheen was probably even back then was probably doing so much coke he probably he could have taken out at least 50 of those you know red bastards by himself um it just it ain't happening <laughs> i mean the wolverines do not stand a chance against you know the russian army and the nicaraguan slash i think cuban army too it's just it ain't happening still makes for an awesome movie an amazing cast Patrick Swayze, uh, Charlie Sheen, C. Thomas Howell, Jennifer Grey, Leah Thompson. Uh, believe directed by John Milius, same guy that made Conan the Barbarian. And a little bit of a trivia. It is, I believe, the first movie to be rated PG-13. Basically, the PG-13 rating was created for this movie. Not quite rated R, not quite PG. So, you know, there's a little bit of fun fact. So next one... This is going to be one that I think uh, I think was is on everybody's um, Rushmore. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, made by the legend John Hughes. John Hughes, you could pretty much fill up a Mount Rushmore of just John Hughes movies. He did um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, Weird Science. Then he also did like the National Lampoon's Vacation, Home Alone, Uncle Buck, and I think Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Maybe wrong about that. Regardless, he made like basically invented like he he made the eighties uh, as far as movies are concerned. He also made the coolest characters in movies. Ferris Bueller being one of them. Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick, is a hundred percent the so little backstory i did not have a lot of friends growing up believe it or not (laughs) so to learn how to just you know be to learn how to communicate to learn how to you know to try to be cool i just watched movies all the time and tried to mimic the things that i thought were cool that i would see in movies now ferris bueller ferris bueller's day off is definitely one of the ones that i took a lot of advice from and um turns out it doesn't really work in the real world. You kind of come across just sounding like a big douche <laughs> when you talk like Ferris Bueller. It's just one of those things. Now, we all, I believe, want to be a little bit of a Ferris Bueller. 
Everybody wants to be Ferris. You have a smoking hot girlfriend, Mia Sarah. Um, you get to do all this fun shit. You have parents who just seem like the best parents ever. And, yeah, you get to do all this cool stuff. We all want to be Ferris. We're all really just Cameron. I'm 100% just a Cameron. Cameron, beginning the movie, is sick, doesn't want to go anywhere. He's like, dude, Ferris, fuck you, dude. I am so damn sick right now. I'm not going out and hanging out with you and going to, you know, a Cubs game and being part of a parade. That's me. I'm the one always <laughs> just not going to do anything. So, yeah, I'm definitely a Cameron. I think we're all Camerons. We all want to be Ferris. Now, let me just say one thing about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And again, going back to the whole notion of, you know, it's a movie. You're not supposed to take it too seriously. This, there is a, not a chance in hell that Ferris Bueller, Mia Sarah, and, you know, Cameron Sloan, right? Yeah, Mia, Ferris Bueller, Sloan, and Cameron are doing a third of this in one day. And not, it's not even just one day. It's like nine to five. Or, yeah, nine to five. There is not a chance that they go are able to arrange the whole thing as skipping school, be in a parade. Ferris sings two songs in the parade, Don Shane and uh, Twist and Shout. There's a whole improv dance centered around parade. Um, go to a Cubs game. Go to, out to eat at like, fancy restaurants. Go to an art museum uh, and just stare at a painting like really strangely. There is no way. They're get Ferris Bueller's Day Off, if it was actually real, would have been them going to the Cubs game and spending another five hours in traffic. <laughs> I mean, you're trying to travel around Chicago while there's a parade going on. So all roads diverted. So traffic has got to be crazy bad on that day. And yeah, I mean, there's no way they're doing any of this, hardly. They, they might be able to make the Cubs game. They have enough time to maybe go out and get something to eat, go to a Cubs game, come home. There ain't no parade. I mean, none of this other stuff. That, there's no art museum. It ain't happening. But still, regardless, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, one of the greatest movies ever made. Next, I'll try to go through these two a little quicker. Next, another John Hughes uh, classic. And, you know, obviously I don't, I'm not ranking these movies, but it's definitely my favorite out of the four, The Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club, uh, Judd Nelson, Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy, Anthony Michael Hall, and Molly Ringwald. Basically, like, the ideal cast of an 80s movie. Um, another movie that, you know, is awesome as it is. And another person who I definitely tried to mimic growing up, which is the character John Bender, Judd Nelson. Um, <laughs> this is not... Like, the more I watch this now the more I realize, like, how different my, like, how differently I watch it now versus, like, whenever I was a kid. So, like, I 100% start to side more with the principal, <laughs> uh, old Dick Vernon. I'm definitely on his side way more now that I've gotten older. I'm like, this dude not only has to deal with a bunch of punk kids, especially Judd Nelson, but he also, like, he's getting made fun of, like, saying that, like, you know, he's wearing Barry Manilow's clothes. He's he's there on a Saturday. Like, it's his day off, and he has to spend it up there with these, you know, jackass kids who can't just stay out of trouble for a week. 
So I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm on his side now whenever I watch this movie. Um, now, let me take this off real quick. Now, further point. Um, the whole idea, like, so I understand why they're all there. But this is another movie that can only exist in the 80s. Because <laughs> whenever I was re you know, I've watched this movie over 100 times. <clears throat> Anthony Michael Hall's character. So they're all in detention for, like, valid reasons. Judd Nelson, I think, had, like... I think Judd Nelson is just in detention because of, like, what happened in previous detentions. <laughs> I think he's just on, like, an endless cycle of detention. I'm not... I don't really remember what Molly Ringwald did. Maybe skip school or something. Ali Sheedy's just there because she wants to hang out, which is... Okay. Emilio Estevez, like... Rip the skin off of a dude's ass cheeks with duct tape. That'll get you detention. Anthony Michael Hall is in detention for bringing a gun to school. <laughs> this is a thing that could only have happened in, what, 85 or 84, whenever this came out. Had this movie have been made 20 years later, Anthony Michael Hall is not getting a Saturday detention. Anthony Michael Hall is going to prison. <laughs> this dude brought a, a gun to school. Granted, it was a flare gun, and apparently he was going to shoot himself with a flare gun and turn himself into a goddamn jack-o'-lantern. But regardless, you're not getting a you know one Saturday's worth of detention for bringing a gun to school in uh you know anytime post uh, Columbine. So regardless, still, I, it's one of my favorite movies ever. I know it's all a bunch of bullshit. Speaking of movies that are complete bullshit, here's the fourth one. One that I think a lot of people probably would not have in their Mount Rushmore, but they should. Lost Boys. So Lost Boys, directed by Joel Schumacher, starring uh, Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman. Ju what's her name? Damn. Jamie Gertz. Jamie Gertz, who is... Oh, hell yeah. Another movie where... I wanted to be key, I wanted to be Kiefer Sutherland in this movie so bad. I wanted to dress like that, knowing that if I actually dressed like that in real life, I would be getting ridiculed endlessly. I mean, they're wearing trench coats, fingerless gloves, and you know feather earrings. But in this movie, Kiefer Sutherland looks so awesome. He also has the voice of a forty-year-old man. Uh, he has the voice of a forty-year-old jazz musician, and he was like nineteen when they made this movie. So, you know, I don't know what that says about anything, but it's wild. Um, yeah, I mean, Lost Boys is one of the great... It's, I mean, if I do like a Rushmore for Vampire movies, it's 100% in there. It's in the Rushmore for 80s teen movies. Uh, just an all-around awesome movie. Anything involving vampires, I'm into. Um, even if they're kind of gay, still into it. I like the idea of vampires. And to be honest, like people shit on like Twilight and stuff. All vampires are kind of, you know, a little fruity in some ways. It is what it is. Dracula's kind of, you know, like, like, you know, Dracula is basically Liberace with sharp teeth. So anyway, so there, that rounds out the four. Um, let me know what you think. If you agree, disagree. Um, I mean, ultimately, I don't give a shit. It's still... I'm not changing my list, but I would like to know, you know, see if anybody thinks it's a decent list. So that'll end uh, the old Mount Rushmore. Now time to move on to uh, third segment, where that come from. So after the break, that's what I'll...
All right, so this week's uh, segment of where that come from, going back about 300 years, 200 years, 300 years. Oh, boy, that's not good. <laughs> so going back to the 1700s involves a playwright by the name of John Dennis. So John Dennis, playwright I'm sure no one's ever heard of. He's, I mean, was not, he was decently well-known at the time, but, you know, had a bit of a falling off and nobody's really ever heard anything out of him. He did nothing that was um, play-wise that was uh, substantial, except... John Dennis was so a guy who obviously wrote plays, but John Dennis also was a wizard with creating like sound effects. And John Dennis created very realistic sound effects at a time where that was not a thing. Now you would go to a play, watch a play, and yeah, there might be some like you know, like basically the Monty Python coconuts for the, you know, horses. Like, there'd be, like, that kind of sound effects. Very cheesy, not super realistic. John Dennis was making very realistic sound effects, you know, with just, like, household items. So one of the sound effects that he did for one of the plays, so there'd be a play where there'd be, you know, a storm, and he wanted to make the storm sound realistic. So to make the sound of uh, thunder, he would have this giant wooden bowl with metal uh, balls rolling around in it. And he would, like, roll this bowl and yeah the sound of the metal balls rolling around made a very realistic thunder sound and it actually got a pretty decent amount of attention and people were like oh shit that sounds like thunder so he had this play going for a little while and then uh the play was going for a little while and then got shut down like people just were like all right we are not into this we're done well a little bit of time after that John Dennis is like, well, I'll go back to that theater and see because they're doing this like they're apparently were doing a retelling of Shakespeare's Macbeth. So he's like, all right, I'll go back to the theater, you know, back to the old stomping grounds and just watch it, you know, whatever. So he goes back to watch the play Macbeth. And whenever uh, they come upon a scene that involves a thunderstorm, he starts hearing a sound. This sounds like very realistic, like a very realistic thunderstorm. And he's like, boy, that sure sounds an awful lot <laughs> like the sound effects that I created. Well, turns out there's a reason for that is because they had literally just copied what he had done so that they could make very realistic thunderstorm sounds. So John Dennis leaves very pissed off and saying, quote, damn them. They will not let my play run, but they will steal my thunder. So that's where the phrase steal my thunder comes from. It comes from a pretty obscure playwright who just happened to be very good at rolling balls around in a bowl. So, yeah, so that'll do that one. Let's uh, take another little break and do a little uh, half-ass history, and then we'll wrap up the old show. So, one second. All right, so here we go. Going to go ahead and do a little uh, little bit of the old half-ass history. So the first one, I'm going to talk about a guy who the name, the actual guy, you may not be super familiar with, but he has a very, in today's world, a negative legacy to his name. But if you examine the, the guy behind the legacy, behind the name, 
may not be entirely accurate. So the fellow that we're talking about is a guy named Alan Pinkerton. Now, the last name Pinkerton is... the If you know a little bit about history, but no, not a name that uh, usually is <laughs> looked at favorably. But, regardless, Alan Pinkerton was a guy born in 1819 in Scotland. He moves to the U.S. in 1842. When he moves to the U.S., he, being Scottish, has quite a bit more sympathy towards, um, like, slavery. And, like, he's... Alan Pinkerton is, partly because he's Scottish, Alan Pinkerton is an abolitionist. Alan Pinkerton is very much opposed to slavery, very much supportive of like the abolitionist movement, and his home was even a pit stop on the Underground Railroad. So, yeah, the guy was uh, for the culture, as they say. So, Alan Pinkerton uh, works real hard with the abolitionist movement. He even helps to fund the raid on Harper's Ferry by John Brown. John Brown, also a very revolutionary abolitionist, who, along with a few other people, raided Harper's Ferry, were captured and executed. When John Brown was hung, executed for the raid on Harper's Ferry, he was wearing a suit. That suit was allegedly purchased for him by Alan Pinkerton. Alan Pinkerton, John Brown, very close associates. Um... Again, Alan Pinkerton, through his work with the abolitionist movement, helped fund arguably one of the biggest single events in the anti-slavery movement. Alan Pinkerton also, living in uh, kind of the Midwest, became pretty... uh, He started working alongside a a pretty unknown attorney in the state of Illinois uh, to kind of work with the abolitionist movement in a legal way that young unknown attorney was a fellow by the name of Abraham Lincoln <laughs> now Abraham Lincoln and Alan, and Alan Pinkerton end up having a relationship a business relationship later but after this his work with the abolitionist movement um Alan Pinkerton you know kind of working with these people who are you know renegades people kind of not working necessarily well, yeah, working against the law, but doing these um, kind of missions to, you know, enact justice. Alan Pinkerton got very attracted to the idea of like a detective agency, of being a detective. Um, so Alan Pinkerton actually created a group called the Pinkerton National Defense Agency. This National Defense Agency worked as like a hired gun for people who you know, needed like bodyguards, people who were wronged and needed someone to investigate, basically like a PI, like a private investigator firm. Um, One of the jobs that they got was to protect the president of the United States, who at the time was that same unknown lawyer, Abraham Lincoln. And they even stopped the first assassination attempt against Abraham Lincoln not as successful uh, <laughs> on the last attempt because uh, yeah, well, we all know what happened to old uh, old leadhead Lincoln, but they're you know still they at least got one, so pretty good work for Alan Pinkerton and the boys. So Alan Pinkerton, you know, has this defense agency. That defense agency, with its success, 
for at least the first attempt with um, Abraham Lincoln, it basically is the precursor of the Secret Service. Like, it is what the Secret Service became. Now, Lincoln is obviously assassinated, and then after the Civil War, Alan Pinkerton and his boys are hired uh, to start catching train robbers. So train robberies had become a very lucrative form of um, crime throughout the country. Basically, like, the precursor to bank rob, like how bank robberies became a huge thing in the twenties and th- in the thirties, mostly thirties and forties, like right after um, post Great Depression. Um, how you know people like Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, those people were, you know, the big names of in crime back then. Right before that, it was all the train robbers. So he was actually hired to catch who was arguably the most notorious of said train robbers. Jesse James, Jesse James and the James gang, uh, with his, you know, with Frank James, Robert Ford, all these people who are part of the James gang were basically reigning terror throughout the country on trains, you know, just robbing everybody who's on the train, robbing the train itself. Um, so he was hired to catch them because they were like, I mean, Jesus, Pinkerton's defense agency, they're pretty, you know, good at their job. They'll be able to catch them. They don't, they fail miserably. At trying to catch Jesse James. It just doesn't happen for him. Now, still, Alan Pinkerton, in general, at this time, has a very good reputation for himself. He fought, you know, did all this work with the abolitionist movement. I mean, his goddamn house was on the Underground Railroad. <laughs> like, the Underground Railroad, part of it led to Alan Pinkerton's house. He was working with Abraham Lincoln when no one knew Abraham Lincoln was was doing all this stuff, like all these good things. On July 1st, 1884, um, Alan Pinkerton passes away. How Alan Pinkerton died is a bit bizarre. So Alan Pinkerton, in 1884, Alan Pinkerton is walking down the sidewalk, walking along the pavement. Pavement's a little slippery. He slips and falls. When he does, he bites his tongue really hard now because dental care wasn't so great in the late 1800s that bite on his tongue turned into full on gangrene and he died on July 1st 1884 (laughs) from biting his own tongue Um, and then after his death Alan Pinkerton's fellas the, the Pinkerton you know National Defense Agency they started getting hired by the government to start breaking um, strikes. So different unions, like labor unions, who would go on strike, coal miners, uh, people working in the Industrial Revolution, all these different groups. They are, you know, working working for very low wages, working way too many hours. So they just, they all go on strike. And... The Pinkertons, at the time, as they're now called the Pinkertons, start getting hired by the government to go bust the strikes. And how they do that is they basically beat the shit out of the people striking and start shooting them and killing the people who are striking. Now, that is why Alan Pinkerton, when people think of him now, think of him as being like a horrible person. Alan Pinkerton was dead when this stuff was happening. This is not That was not Alan Pinkerton's idea of what this defense agency was going to be doing. So... Trying to shed a little light on the fella, you know, gets a bad rap, but pretty good guy. So let's move on to the. All right. So 
Okay, this next one. Now, this is a story I think a lot of people already know a pretty good amount about, but may not know the details, and there's a bit of a twist at the end that I think a lot of people do not know about. So the story is of the plane crash that killed... So, blah, 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 reverse. So, in 1977, the band Leonard Skinner is on tour, and they're going to perform a show in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at LSU. On their way to that show, their hired jet, so they have hired this, you know, uh, a Convair CV240? Yes, I think that's what I had, yeah. And they have chartered a, a private jet for them to fly to their show in Baton Rouge. Well, the plane is running low on fuel, and they have to basically do an emergency landing. That emergency landing turns into a crash landing where the plane crashed into a tree line, and yeah, it did not, it was bad. So, ends up killing three members of the band. Lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, and uh, and then Cassie Gaines, who is the back, um, one of the backup vocalists. So they all three die. Ronnie Van Zant is laying down in the back of the plane in the aisle. He gets shot out the front of the plane, hits hits a tree, and his head basically smashes into a tree. Not a great way to go out. Um, and the ones who do survive, which a lot of people do survive. They're pretty messed up too. So Billy Powell, the keyboardist, he almost has his nose ripped off. It's like barely hanging on by a little piece of skin. Um, the drummer Artemis Pyle, he ends up just with a you know a fucked up leg and then and broken ribs. Artemis Pyle, with these broken ribs, climbs his way out of the wreckage, walks through basically a marshy forest swamp until he finally reaches a house. He's like, oh, thank God. I found somebody they can come rescue us. Well, the guy who owns the house is watching this dude with a long hair, big beard, covered in blood, stumbling out of the woods, and is a little freaked out. So he goes and grabs his gun and proceeds to fire a warning shot that goes right over Artemis Powell's head. Like enough to where he could, said that he felt the bullet whiz by him. <laughs> so Artemis Powell almost survived a plane crash to almost get shot in the head trying to get help. Well, the guy is able to find out what really happened. He's like, oh, okay, okay. So they go and rescue everybody who's, you know, still alive. Um, so the crash happens. Now, obviously, Ronnie Van Zant, Steve Gaines, like, uh, horrible. And what happens to Cassie Gaines the Cassie Gaines side of it's a little bizarre. So Cassie Gaines had a very big fear of flying, was terrified of flying in planes. So she usually rode with like the tour bus that was carrying the gear, you know, the roadies and everybody else. She usually rode with them or drove herself to the gigs, like was not about flying in a plane. Well, this show was going to be just like all the rest. She was just going to drive to Baton Rouge. And apparently Ronnie Van Zant kept on and on trying to pressure her into getting on the plane and flying and she agreed well she ends up dying alongside Steve Gaines and Ronnie Van Zandt now the reason this plane crashed is because the two pilots who also died in the uh, crash they were some of the most 
inept pilots ever. So this plane had no business being in the air ever. This plane was in horrible condition. It had a fuel gauge that didn't work. <laughs> the fuel gauge always said that there was uh, fuel in the plane when there, even if there wasn't fuel in the plane. So they were supposed to be manually checking the tanks to make sure that it had fuel. Well, they didn't. They just, that slipped their mind. So they end up taking off for a gig in a plane that has basically no fuel. So they were doomed from the beginning. So all this happens. Leonard Skinner ends up, you know, it basically is the end of Leonard Skinner until the other reiterations. And it's, you know, it's a huge story. So everybody kind of knows this story that Leonard Skinner, the band Leonard Skinner died in a plane crash. Uh, now, that happened in October of 77. A couple months before that, there was a different band looking to charter planes. And the singer and guitarist of said band were, you know, looking around to find like a cheap plane to charter. So they go and pay a visit to the two pilots who died in this plane crash and were dead set on chartering that plane. They were like, yeah, this plane looks great. We don't know what we're doing. So, yeah, it's a plane. It works. You guys are pilots. We'll take it. Now, the uh, manager of the band, not the band, but the band I'm talking about, uh, the manager was like, eh, I'll go. So, Aris, so the hmm, so the band's assistant is like, eh, I'll check this out, and goes to take a look at the plane. Well, when the assistant of that band uh, goes to check the plane, he is inspecting it and is like, oh, this plane is in horrible condition, and also sees the two pilots uh, passing a bottle of Jack and uh, Jack Daniels back and forth. So the two pilots are sitting there drinking Jack Daniels while the guy's checking on their plane. He's like, oh, this is bad. We're in, we are not taking this plane. And basically has to talk the singer and guitarist of that band into not taking it, being like, we're going to die in this plane. The singer and guitarist are Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, the band who was going to take that plane earlier that year, who probably would have died in a plane crash, that band was Aerosmith. So, yeah. <laughs> a crazy bit of a coincidence that, you know, worked out in Aerosmith's favor, but not so much in old Skinner's. So, yeah. So, there's that one. One more, and then we will wrap it up. So, once. Okay. So, last one for the day. Uh, last little bit of half-ass history. So, this one... Gonna be a little bit of film history, a little bit of a American crime history, all wrapped into one. So, talking about the movie Terminator. Terminator, one of the greatest movies of the '80s. The sequel, Terminator 2, arguably the greatest movie sequel of all time. Um, so, a little fun fact about the movie Terminator: Arnold Schwarzenegger was not supposed to be the Terminator. Now, obviously, this has become like a legendary role for him, probably what he's most famous for, I would say. At one point, Arnold Schwarzenegger was not going to be the Terminator. The actor who <laughs> was going to be the Terminator was a fellow by the name of O.J. Simpson. <laughs> and according to James Cameron, was rejected for it because Cameron didn't believe he could believably play a mindless killing machine. <laughs> well, little did he know. <laughs> yeah, um... O.J. Simpson was at one point going to be the Terminator. And luckily it didn't work out. 
Arnold takes it and, you know, it becomes this massive movie franchise. So that's in the 80s when the first Terminator is being done. Now, fast forward to the early 90s, Terminator 2 is being filmed. And this movie, I mean, arguably some of the most revolutionary special effects of all time, the T-1000 Terminator played by Robert Patrick is like... I mean, the melted metal CGI. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing effects done by the legend himself, James Cameron. Um, fun fact about Terminator 2. A little, so a little side fact about Terminator 2. Like how O.J. Simpson was going to be the original Terminator and it didn't work. The original T-1000 was not going to be played by Robert Patrick. It was actually going to be played by musician Billy Idol. <laughs> but Billy Idol had got injured and they weren't able to make it happen. So Billy Idol ended up not being the T-1000, which whew, would have been interesting for sure. Now, the craziest story about the filming of Terminator 2 is that there's a scene in Terminator 2, probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie, where Arnold, the Terminator, goes into this biker bar. And when he's in the biker bar, has this encounter with the bikers takes their clothes their motorcycles uh you know and that becomes like his wardrobe for the rest of the movie uh they put out a cigar on him does nothing like that scene the biker bar scene in terminator 2 is legendary well across so they actually filmed this in an they filmed it in an actual bar in like an actual biker bar on location across the street from that biker bar while they're inside filming this scene, you know, in the middle of the night in Los Angeles, they're filming the scene in the bike bar. Across the street, there is a man who has been pulled over by the LAPD. And that man, according to the LAPD, is resisting arrest. So they proceed to beat the living shit out of this man. And little do they know. There is a camera pointed on them. Not James Cameron's camera, but a different camera. There is a home video camera filming the entire thing. That man is Rodney King. So, Terminator 2 being filmed on this side of the street. On the other side, a little bit down the street, so across the street a little bit down, Rodney King is being beaten by the LAPD. And that obviously becomes a huge story partly due to the fact that the Los Angeles Police Department officers who were responsible for the beating got off completely scot-free. And to do a real iffy uh, connection here, it is argued that the Rodney King beating and subsequent full, you know, you know, full exoneration of the Los Angeles Police Department officers is Part of the reason why the guy who was supposed to play the original Terminator, O.J. Simpson, was found not guilty for his uh, alleged murders. People draw the connection that it was like a makeup for the fact that the LA, the Los Angeles Justice Department got it so wrong with Rodney King that they were like, you know what? Like it became a, a focal point of the O.J. Simpson trial. So a little bit of a connection there. I know I'm kind of drawing the straws on that one. I don't care. I see the connection. Granted, my brain is basically fried, so who knows. But anyway, so there's the half-ass history for this week. I hope you enjoyed all of them. Uh, 
leave a, again, leave a comment, like, and subscribe, go buy a t-shirt, you know, I need cigarette money, so I appreciate you watching, we'll see you next one.